Good morning, Redeemer family. Man, isn't that what we cry out every week? We believe, Lord, make us believe. Help us to believe. Help our unbelief. Um, man, it's good, to, it's good to sing. It's good to be reminded of the truth. It's good to be together this morning. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting into God's word together. Well, we are now in the uh, camera phone generation, right? You can, you can probably look back at your own pictures. As I look back at mine, there is the BCP section of my photos, the before camera phone section, and there's the after camera phone section, the ACP. And the BCP section has good pictures of specific events in my life and specific things that we did. Um, and then it'll go days or months without pictures. The ACP section, it's just everything. Things I will never want to go back and look at again, and I've got them, and they're there. And if I want to remember what I ate that one time, it might be there. Uh, and and that's that's how that's the generation we're in. And so in this sea of pictures, uh, people have decided, well, I got to stand out. That's what social media is, right? In fact, uh, some of the best Instagram folks, which I don't even know what that means, uh, but some of the best Instagrammers, uh, they, they know how to be choosy. They, they know how to only pick the best images. They know how to craft the exact impression of themselves that they want everyone else to see. And of course, all these perfect images are designed to do something in us. They're designed to make us want something, want their life. I recently heard about what I think is probably the most peak version of this that I've ever heard, that there are now photographers who rent out time on private jets so that they can book photo shoots with models who want pictures of themselves and their friends having a great time on a private jet because they want everyone to think that's the life that we live is private jet life. Except here's the kicker, the photo shoot and the jet is happening in the hangar. There's nobody in the air, they're just in the jet taking pictures. And quickly, photographers figured that out. They said, well, if we're just gonna be in the hangar, I can recreate this in my studio. I don't even need to pay the people that own the jet. I'll just make a jet inside in my little strip center studio. And so here we are taking pictures of ourselves in a strip center and posting them as though we're on a jet. Why? I say us, I've never done that. Why? <laughs> I don't plan to. Uh, because, because we want that. They know that we want that sort of life. People marvel at those pictures, not, not knowing that they're really looking at nothing. It's just a big nothing. It's a mirage. And I think in today's text, Jesus is pointing to one of the world's oldest and craftiest mirages, the mirage of money. And, and yeah, you heard me right. This is a sermon about money. Maybe you heard, listened as the text was being read a minute ago, but don't hang up the phone. Don't check out. Uh, I, I think the Lord can speak to us and will speak to us through his word in a powerful way this morning. And, and so I want us to look in, to, to Jesus's words this morning. And as we do, I want us to see three uh, realities about money and about treasure. Number one is the life of money. Number two, the anxiety of money. And lastly, counting the treasure. So as, as we jump in, uh, in verse 33 to this section, uh, it's, it's a real strange turn in the discussion. Jesus has just finished warning his disciples about hypocrisy. Uh, he told them, hey, the same misplaced fear that's driving the Pharisees to act all righteous, uh, that's, that can also drive you. That fear of man, the fear of suffering, it'll cause you to fake. It'll cause you to pretend like you don't have any sin, to play act at righteousness. And ultimately it'll lure you away from Christ. And, and as though right on cue, this dude steps up and this guy in the crowd, not one of the disciples of Jesus, he steps up almost as if to say, hey, here I am, Jesus, your object lesson. Uh, 
look at verse thir- 13. Someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Which leads us to number one, the life of money. I, I think the disciples were probably like, hey bro, like read the room. There's something else happening here, man. This is, we're, t- we're learning about hypocrisy. This is not a, an estate planning session. So, and we don't know, we don't know who this guy is. Uh, he, he doesn't seem to be antagonizing Jesus or testing Jesus. He's probably just perplexed. He's probably worried about his own financial predicament. Maybe he's being cheated by his brother. Uh, he's worried. The comment, Jesus gives us like no commentary on who this guy is or what his situation is. Um, either way, we know he's worried and he, and he wants Jesus to help him. Certainly it wouldn't have been uncommon for rabbis to get involved to help settle disputes and mediate uh, typical situations. And so uh, that's maybe what he's thinking. But uh, if you know the ministry of Jesus, Jesus does, when, he thinks, when you think he should zig, he zags. Well, here he goes in verse 14. He says to this man, friend, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Uh, the CSB translates this as friend, but it's actually a harsher word than that. It's like, dude, like man. I think the word is man in most translations. Uh, bro, what's going on here? I, that's, I'm not your attorney. That's not who I am. I'm not an estate planner. Uh, but of course, Jesus doesn't stop there. And, and this is so typical of Jesus. We come in with one problem, one need that we think we have. And instead of solving the problem we thought we had, he, he, instead of solving our little squabble, he goes, you've got a bigger problem and I'm gonna solve that one. So he goes on in verse 15. says, he then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possession. So last week it was look out for hypocrisy and now watch out for greed. And this warning is pretty direct, uh, but it isn't just a warning about sinful behavior. It's don't be greedy. But he, does, he goes beyond the greed. He goes straight to a wrong belief that's behind the greed. Watch out for all kinds of greed, but why? Because there's a dangerous belief driving it. It's the belief that to gain more, more money, more possessions, that this is to gain life. More possessions equals more fulfillment, more satisfaction. And that's, all, that's what all of us are after, isn't it? We're all searching for life. That's what we want. Deep satisfaction, deep happiness, deep contentment, real life. And Jesus says, watch out because your heart, your heart's gonna be prone to believe the lie that the way to get there, you want that life, get more money. That's the lie you're prone to believe. And like Jesus often does, he tells a story to bring understanding. Look at verse 16. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. So Jesus is kind of pulling back the curtain on this man's thoughts and, and look at what he's saying. He's giving himself a pep talk. This is really funny language. Like everything's in like first person. Uh, I don't have anywhere to store my crops. I will do this. I'll build bigger barns. I will say to myself, he's preaching a gospel to himself. He's saying, oh, just hold on self. 
Because once you build those bigger barns, self, I'll get to hear myself say, well done, good and faithful self. Enter into your rest, enjoy life. Ah, but his little self-help, his little false gospel presentation is interrupted. And it's interrupted by God's words in verse 20. Verse 20 says, God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And the message could probably just stop there. Like there's so much there, so much truth. The truth that this life, it's not forever. And like literally, you won't be here to enjoy all of the things you're keeping. You won't get to keep them. When, this, when it's over, it's over. And look, the Bible isn't against saving. That's, that's not what this is about. Proverbs commends uh, saving and having an inheritance for your children. But this isn't a, a passage for or against the saving of money. No, Jesus is describing someone who saves money because he thinks money is hope. Money is life. Maybe you've preached that same false gospel to yourself. If I could just get a little more of my savings, then I'll have the life that I can enjoy. I'll, I'll feel good about life. Just, a, just income needs to go up just a little. Once the bank account is where it needs to be, I'll, I'll be able to rest. I'll be, be able to enjoy it. That's gonna be the sweet season of life when I get there. And greed is telling you, well, go get it. Go get it. Oh, but Jesus is saying, if money is your hope, what do you really have? If your life is built on the security, the abundance that money affords, then life for you is a ticking time bomb. So whether it's in this life or it's in the grave, it's all gonna be gone, every bit of it. And what will you have left? And, and, and maybe even more scary, what if you actually get it? What do you have then? Because money as hope is like the mirage in the desert. It's like you get there and you kneel down to scoop up that big old delicious scoop of water and it's just sand in your mouth. And Jesus is saying, no, there's, there's another type of life that you need. You don't need to be rich in money. You need to be rich toward God. I literally think this means, he's saying, you don't need your, you need your metaphorical barns filled with God. You need more of him. That's the savings account that's never gonna run out. Which leads to number two, the anxiety of money. Look at verse 22. It's, Jesus is, begins talking now about worry and anxiety, but I, I don't think he's changing the subject. This isn't a, a subject change. Uh, look at verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Isn't this an interesting connection that we begin to see in this text? That if money is your life, if that's your security, then rather than finding peace, rather than actually getting the security and the peace that you're after, what you actually get is anxiety. And, and we live in the age of anxiety, don't we? The increase in the rates of anxiety around the world 
have been on the uh, massive increase in the last 30 years, but shrink it down to the last 10 years and it's, and it's even more so. Beyond that, you shrink it down to just the United States, even bigger. And, and one last step, shrink it down to the upcoming generation and it's off the charts. Anxiety, off the charts. And there's a lot of guesses as to why the world is more combustible, certainly. Things are scarier, like just watch the news or don't. Many also attribute our anxiety and our constant, uh, to our constant connection, that we never rest, we never disconnect. And when we do, we're, we're often in front of a screen. And when we're in front of a screen, we're often looking at something that we, should, we think, oh, I should be doing that. Oh, look what they're doing. I should probably work on that. Oh, that's, that's, what, that's where I wanna go. That's the vacation I, I need to, that's, they're doing the thing I wanna do. And so even though we're more connected, we begin to feel more isolated, which leads to even more anxiety. But I, I, I think one reason that, that rarely gets mentioned for our anxiety, I think we all know about it, and I think Jesus is, is pointing us here, is this, is that money, money dominates our thinking, doesn't it? Money can dominate us. There's songs about it. There's songs that just say money, 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 money. That's the lyrics. It was a great brainstorming session. Uh, money, do I have enough? How do I get more? What if I lose what I have? And this is what Jesus is warning of. Our anxieties are tied to our desires. We want money. And so our greed is stored up. It's, I mean, stirred up. It, and it's, instead of being able to rest and enjoy the Savior, we're anxious because our security's out there. It's in something we don't have yet. Look what he says in verse 24. So Jesus says, consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn. Yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? I love here, first of all, that Jesus doesn't use the example. Look to the person who has no money. He doesn't say, he doesn't say that. Um, because honestly, even the person, person with hardly any money can be struck with just as much greed as the next. He says, no, I'm gonna go, I'm actually gonna go further down than that. Look at the birds. Jesus likes bird metaphors. We saw one of these last week. <clears throat> last week it was, look at the worthless sparrow. If Jesus cares about worthless sparrows, how much more do you think you're worth? He cares about you. What a comfort. But now he says, look at the ravens. They have planned nothing, he says. They have no retirement account. They don't even, they're not even, they don't even have a job. They're not saving. They're not, they're not thinking about their IRA, their future. And here they are receiving, receiving what God gives. And that's not how our world is, is it? Our world is a meritocracy. Our world says, eat or be eaten. No one's gonna look out for you, so you better. And Jesus says, that's not how it is with God. Your father's aware of you. He knows what you need. Verse 30, your father knows your needs and he cares. And, and, and just maybe, I, I pray that for some of you, just hearing that today, your father knows what you need. I, I pray that for some of you that would 
cut the legs out of anxiety in your life. That that would, that that would give you rest where there hasn't been rest. Your father knows. And he's your father. He cares. Look at verse 25. Can any of you add one moment to his life by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? He's saying if, if brainless, unplanning birds uh, can survive and thrive because of God, how much do you think all you're spinning and worrying is really getting something done? If God's providing for the birds, what are they doing? Again, this isn't a condemnation of saving, but it is a rebuke against believing that your security is in what you save. Because how much can you do, he says? Can you add a moment to your life? Some commentators think this actually means, can you add inches to your height? Which I like. Uh, I, I've tried, I can't. Like, I, I wish I could be taller. It's not happening. <clears throat> I got no hope at either one. So whichever one this Greek word means, whether it's inches or days, it's, you're either, you can't do either. It's out of your control. You don't have the capacity to accomplish it. And so if your peace comes from something you can build, be worried. Because what can you really do? But if provision comes from God, you can actually rest. He goes on in verse 27. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. So the, the rebuke is getting even worse. He moves on from animals. This is like, we're going down. And now think about plants. Plants don't even have feet. Like they can't go anywhere. If they could come up with a retirement strategy, they couldn't execute it. They have nothing they can do. They can't conduct business. I mean, unless... Unless like what bees and flowers have going on. That's business, maybe. Uh, maybe there's a transaction. But they're helpless. Oh, but aren't the plants provided for? Nobody, I, I, I mean, I'm sure somebody's made a painting of a bank. But how many paintings have you seen of a field? Of the flowers? Why? Because God has bestowed beauty on them. He has made them pictures of his glorious beauty and might. That's God. God did that. They didn't do it. Solomon's riches couldn't compare to the wealth that has been bestowed upon plants. And look at verse 28. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the fields today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much is he going to do for you? You have little faith. How much will he do for you? Friends, your, your soul is eternal. You're much more than grass. And therefore his plan is a million times better than what he's got in store for grass. So again, allow that to strike at the heart of anxiety in your life. He cares for you. In verse 29, finally, don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink. And don't be anxious. It seems so clear to me that, that many of our anxieties are wrapped up in, in money and in the security that, that, that we think we need. And can we just be honest about that? 
Like that there's a degree of financial stability that we just think we should have, that we, that we think we need. And, and we, see, we see our property values going up and tax rates going up and, and eggs getting really expensive. And, and there's just all these things rolling around in our minds. And, and Jesus is telling us, I think today, he's, he's telling us to watch out because the lie is very subtle. The lie that if, if I can just get to this point financially, just a little more income, just a little better planning. If I can just hit the next job level, if I can just budget better, invest properly, streamline my expenses just right, then I can build something that will never let me down. It'll be a rock. See how easily saving can become hope. It can become the thing we bank ourselves on, bank our trust in. This is why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, instruct the rich in this age not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything. It's not their riches that provide, it's God that provides. And Jesus gives us the same warning today. Don't trust them. Don't trust riches, trust the father. Which leads to our final point, number three, counting the treasure. Verse 31, but seek his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. So if seeking life and security and money, if that's a mirage, then, then what's the solution? Seek his kingdom. And I think the operable word in that, in that command is his, his kingdom. One of my favorite parables of Jesus has always been the parable of, of the hidden treasure. You may be familiar with this story. It's also paired together with this, the parable of the priceless pearl. This is in Matthew chapter 13. Um, if you don't remember it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and read it for us. Uh, it's really short. It's verse 44 of Matthew 13. Uh, the parable goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And I love these two little like, micro parables. They're really quick from Jesus. I love it because they're, they're so succinct and so profound. So what's, what story do these, do these two parables tell? They tell the story of someone who discovered something of imminent value, a treasure, how, how could I be so fortunate? How did no one else see this? How has no one else noticed this treasure in the field? No one has rightly evaluated this pearl yet. How, how do I, how am I the one who found it? And when he realizes the value of, of the, the treasure he's looking at now, what's his reply? He goes in his joy, which I like to think means he runs smiling with a big silly smile on his face and he runs and he sells everything that he has. What's, what's this fool doing? I think it's probably what people would say. So irresponsible. How's he gonna live? How's he gonna survive? But you see that this man had discovered that there was something of ultimate value. What does it cost me? Everything, I'm in. 
I'm in, I'll sell it all. There's no price he wouldn't pay, no, no, no cost too high. I'll surrender everything that I might gain this treasure. You see, something of surpassing value supplanted what had been his treasure till then. And so Jesus tells this story to say, that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what, that's what this life of being a Christian is. It's that when you see the worth of Christ, you, you give it all up. You give everything else up. But it's not some grudging act. Okay, I guess I will. Yes, the gospel does require that of us. It requires us to lay down everything. But giving up everything we, we once treasured is all, both at the same time, a, a, a massive sacrifice and no sacrifice at all. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus supplants every other treasure. And this isn't earning. We don't lay down everything so that we might save enough to earn or acquire Jesus. That's not how it works. No, Jesus is the king. And there cannot be two kingdoms. There's only room for one king. And so you wanna hold real treasure? If you wanna be a part of the kingdom where there are riches forever, if you wanna taste that real life, that real peace, then you have to lay aside your kingdom. You have to get off the throne. You have to embrace him as your treasure. And it dawned on me as I was studying this this week that this parable from today's text, the parable about the, the, uh, the, got the, the, the one that we just looked at, the one who sold everything, it's the very same story as today's text. It's the very same story as the one who, the, about the man who builds the bigger barns and, and stores up all his crops. It's the very same parable, except for one thing. The man who built the big barns never found a better treasure he never put aside his kingdom. He never saw Christ and, and, and that treasure as better. And so Jesus is warning the disciples. And I think he's warning us. This is what your life will be if you never discover the treasure that is Christ. If Jesus never changes you. If your kingship is never supplanted by him as your king, then watch out. Because that life, that life you're living, that life of greed, it's a life of anxiety. It's a life of holding tightly to what you have, but then can I hold tightly enough? It's a life of always protecting, but is everything safe enough? It's a life of always storing up, but never being able to keep. But look at verse 31. But seek his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. Seek his kingdom. In Christ's kingdom, there is rest coming. There is peace and security coming. Verse 32, don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. So what we see here is, it's, this isn't something that's earned. The father gives this. It's a new reality. It's a new reality where it's not you that holds everything together. It's not you that has to spin and toil to make sure that it all stays together. No, it's, it's a new reality, a new kingdom where Christ is holding all things together. And I love how tender he is here as he's speaking to them. Don't be afraid. When Christ is your king, you don't have to be afraid. When the money isn't there, 
when the deal isn't going through, when you're not able to buy all the things that you wanted for your kids or for your grandkids, don't be afraid, little flock. Your father, the great shepherd, he's with you. And it may feel like you're, you're losing everything. It may feel like everything's going wrong, but he delights to give you the kingdom. And so you can pray the prayer of David in Psalm 23, I shall not want, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. And when Christ is with you, and when you, when you know he's with you, you're not afraid. And when you're not afraid, look at the crazy things you'll do. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Wait now, what will I do? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Instead of building bigger barns, you'll have a barn garage sale. Happily. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. This is so countercultural, isn't it? We get uncomfortable with this kind of language. I think especially here in America. And, and I think if we're not careful, we will try to live a form of Christianity that sees Jesus as something we add to our kingdom. We add him to what we're building, to the barns we've got. Look, listen to this little uh, analogy from C.S. Lewis, a great uh, story from his book, Mere Christianity. He says this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks and the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed, needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, uh, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Jesus is not just tweaking your life. He is not just making small changes. No, he is altering you profoundly. The project is bigger than you realize. He's building something lasting. He's building something in you that is, that is eternal. You know, it, it's funny. Every now and then I've, I've heard the comment at Redeemer. Um, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that you guys don't talk about money a lot. Um, you know, I love, I love you don't pass the plate or I hear, we hear things like that every now and then. Um, and we, I mean, we used to pass the plate. We've, we pass it at different seasons uh, in life of the church. Um, but it's, what's funny is I've also found that usually those comments are like from people not, that aren't part of our church. Like they're people that are, that are just kind of bystanders or, or, or new people that are, that, are, that are not really walking with Jesus or they're, or they're, or they're just new to our church. <clears throat> and because when Jesus is your treasure, uh, then something changes. Because these people that ask questions like that, I think they haven't settled that yet. Jesus isn't king. And so for them, uh, the suggestion that you would give your treasure away, that's offensive, right? It's offensive to many in our culture. But when he is your treasure, you start looking 
for ways to give it away? Where can I give? How can I use my resources to leverage for his kingdom? And listen, some churches have abused money and they handled it so poorly. Some, some have built extravagantly, some have spent excessively. And man, I, I pray that's not the case here. I mean, we fight against that. In fact, when we started 15 years ago, I think some of us had so much PTSD uh, coming from churches where money had been handled so poorly that we set up so many safeguards and so many, we just didn't even wanna know about it. Like we, we, we were so careful. And, and maybe, maybe for that reason, we haven't even talked about it much. And this is not me talking about money for Redeemer this morning. We're just going through the text. We'll talk about some money. We'll talk about money a little bit tonight at our family meeting. We need to talk about money. Uh, if you're part of the family, you need to give. Like that's, that's what it is to be a part of the family, to contribute to the family. That's how the family of God works. It's how we accomplish the mission together. But if that's how, how you feel, like you feel like that person that's like, man, don't, don't say that. Don't talk about that. Um, or maybe if you get angry when you hear churches talk about it, or maybe even as you listen to Jesus say, sell everything and give to the poor, you just go, mm, I don't know, Jesus. I don't know. I think that's probably, there's probably some translation work we need to do there. It probably doesn't mean that. And maybe, 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 maybe your feeling like that is just a mistrust of the church. But maybe in your soul, maybe it's anxiety. Maybe you're anxious. You're anxious because you're going, man, if I give it away, what'll happen? I gotta have that savings. I've gotta have that security. I need the bigger barn. And so maybe, maybe I, would, I would propose, it could be that as you examine your own heart, maybe your primary treasure, maybe your primary security in this life is not Jesus. Look how he ends it in verse 34. I think Jesus wants you and me to hear this today. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your heart today? Is it anxious about this life? the trappings of your kingdom? If it is, then your heart, your stability, your joy, they're gonna be tied up to however solid your, your, your situation is, however, however well your life is going. Or today is your heart enamored with the true king, with the treasure that is Christ. If so, then your heart, your stability, it will be as secure as Christ himself. So, so how, do we, how do we get there? How do we move from treasuring wealth, treasuring security to treasuring Christ? You guys know that scene probably in, in Dickens' Christmas Carol, um, or at least maybe you've seen it in Mickey's Christmas Carol, uh, where Scrooge is sitting at his counting house, right? And he's stacking up coin upon coin because apparently that's what you do when you have that much. You just stack it up coin on coin. Um, and you look at it, you count it. You, you log in and look at the account and, and, and you, 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 you monitor it. Have you ever stopped and counted the surpassing worth of Christ? Have you ever run the numbers? Have you ever stacked coin upon coin, examining his perfect attributes, his immense grace to you? I, I just imagine that man in the parable that found the buried treasure and, and as he's looking around going, does anybody else see this? And he's laying it out on the ground going, what, am I, what did I find here? And he begins to count it. And I can just imagine as he's counting it, he's going, 
is this for real? Can it be this good? This is what it is to be a Christian. As you look intently at the treasure that is the gospel of Jesus, and you begin to see what Christ has done for you, you can begin to do the math. You can begin to add it up. Friends, run the numbers. Run the numbers on Jesus. His excellencies outpace every spreadsheet. Look at his perfections. Stare at his beauty and his kindness. Think about his great patience with you. What is this treasure? What is this? What am I looking at? Look at his great grace that he loved you even when you were far from him, even when you hated him. Let that grin start to come over your face as you go, what have I found? Weep with joy when you calculate the cost of what Christ paid for your sin to be forgiven, for you to be called the son of the father. And then look at what he's doing now. What sort of price could you put on the value that is your anxieties being carried? How much is it worth that you have a redeemer that's given you a new heart, that's making you new? And what about your future? The futures are good with Jesus. Think about that day that you're going to hear your savior say, well done, enter the rest that I have secured for you. You're gonna count up his glorious promises forever in heaven. Think about them now. Think about the kingdom he's bringing, a future where there will be no more pain, where in your resurrected body, you will have no more back pain. Cancer will be no more. Sin will be a distant memory. Oh, and anxiety will be eradicated. The treasure, it's inexhaustible. We could go on and on and on, keep counting, keep counting. But when, once you stop, because you gotta stop counting at some point, when you stop counting, when you've pondered his beauty, you've estimated his worth, it changes the math of this life. The math of this life has changed forever. Because when you look back then, after you've estimated the worth and seen the exhaustible riches of Christ, when you look back to your old treasure, the money that used to consume you, it, won't, it can't make you anxious anymore. I've got a different treasure. And you will cry out. As you look to Jesus, you will cry out with the words of the great hymn writer that said, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Jesus is better. Let's pray for Oh Lord, would you take the scales off of our eyes where we have undervalued how beautiful you are, how merciful you've been, how much you uphold us even now, where we have minimized your, your worth in our minds. Lord, would you just help us to see it? Open our eyes. Would you help us to look to the cross of Christ and to see all that's been done for us? His empty tomb, his life for us now. Lord, we need eyes to see. And Lord, as we see, as we see Christ, 
what everything else, all other, all other idols, all other sources of security and value, would they just fade out? They can't control us because you are our king. We love you. Would you, would you do a work in us? Change us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.